We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host Nick Bellato. Today we're here to talk to you about our favorite, Joe Shane, Giants general manager's best moves since taking over as Giants general manager. He's now had two off-seasons. The way we decided to do this, we're ranking his five best moves. And we wanted the criteria to be these are differentiating moves. These are moves that differentiated him versus the general average NFL general manager. We ranked them one through five. The rankings were based on our own valuations. For example, moves that we find more valuable than others. Now, that doesn't mean that finding them more valuable means they are more important to the team, right? It might be easier to use, for example, our fifth move, which we're about to go over. It's easier said than done, easier done than said. Then say the first move that's first in our rankings, that's harder to do. So we ranked it higher, even though the fifth move might be actually more important to if this team wins and loses football games. And it's good he's doing it because past GMs haven't done it. We'll get to that all in a moment. But before we do that, Nick, how's your week been? My week is excellent, Dan. My oh. girlfriend has not been here. She is actually in the uh, Air Race Classic representing uh, female pilots flying across the country. So she went from North Dakota to South Florida. So it's just me and my puppy here hanging out and having a good old time. Is she? Did she win the race? We don't find that out until tomorrow. Do you think, does she feel confident? I don't know. I haven't asked her if she won or not. They have weird criteria on how they yeah. judge who wins and loses. And I don't even want to like even get into that because I'm not even fully, it's not as okay. simple as, oh, were you the first to arrive? I do think it's cool, man, that she got to travel the country. Like she saw a bunch of states yeah. that she would never see before. Sure. So she has some cool stories and uh, I'm very happy for her. Yeah, good for her. She deserves that. So that's awesome, man. I had a pretty good week as well. I capped it off on Thursday night at City Field on the oh, field, yeah. listening to Dead & Co. I got to say, I have now made a decision that the and I've probably seen probably 50 live bands in my life. John Mayer is the single best musician I've ever seen play music. And I don't know if it's close after watching him on Thursday night from, you know, 20, 30 feet away. It's truly remarkable what he was able to do on the guitar. He also can sing and his voice is awesome, but I'm just going to focus on the guitar for now because there were moments of that set. Like there was when they covered all along the watchtower. I mean, they essentially the band just stopped playing and watched John 
That's how good he was on that guitar solo. They were just stopped playing and watched him play the guitar. And it was mind boggling. I just couldn't believe it. I was in a trance. I think a lot of the stadium got lost in the music at that point when John was just wailing off on all along the watchtower. He had multiple amazing solos throughout that. Like they did a cover of Mr. Dear Mr. Fantasy into Hey Jude. And he destroyed that as well. Just incredible experience. My first ever Dead and Coke show. The second set after space was just hit after hit after hit. And they ended the show perfectly. It's their last show they'll ever do there, I think, or at least this crew. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to make that take, get that hot take out there, Nick. Best musician I've ever seen play live, John Mayer. I've only seen one band live, at least in a concert setting. I also saw yeah. Taproot once back in like 2012, right when I got out of the Marines at the Stanhope House in Stanhope, New Jersey, which is a little small town nobody really heard yeah. of. But yeah, I need to get to more shows. I saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers recently, and that was fun. Now that you liked it, you may have the itch for it and you'll get, you'll get going on it. But let's talk about what we're deciding today, which are the best five moves Giants general manager Joe Shane has made so far. Again, he's had two years, two off seasons. The Giants, when he took them over, they've only had one actual season. When he took them over, they were one of the worst teams in the NFL. Under Dave Gettleman, the Giants won next to no football games. The only team that won fewer games, I believe, over that four-year Dave Gettleman span was the New York Jets. I know a lot of people now want to give him credit for Dave Gettleman's roster laughable but it is what it is some people just never learn and when joe shane took over the team won nine games immediately and so something had to happen for that to take place when you have not as much turn turnover as you would expect right because remember joe shane had no salary cap space to work with as dave gettleman bankrupt them financially last season and so there was nothing to spend so he couldn't really do anything he signed mark Lewinsky, whatever a mid-tier deal. We, you know, we wanted a few other guards that were on the market, right? And he got Mark Lewinsky. It's okay. It's the best he could do with the money he had, thanks to Dave. But to get to the point of winning nine games with nothing to spend financially, he had to do something right, Nick. So start with number five on your list, and we'll go one by one. We may have different lists, so we'll just figure that out. But number five on your list is... Number five on the list is actually the same. Now, I was more specific towards the interior defensive line, but I'm going to group the offensive line in this. It's just upgrading the trenches. And it's something that Dave Gettleman said he was going to do specifically on the offensive side of the football. We want to get the hog mollies. He kept saying hog mollies. It kind of became this little running joke between giant fans. But that never really happened. Yes, he drafted Andrew Thomas with a top five pick, but there were still plenty of draft picks and plenty of players within the draft who were like, you still need to invest in the offensive line. And the offensive line sucked throughout his tenure here. But Joe Shane, for his first draft, ended up drafting Evan Neal, Josh Azudu, Marcus McKethan. And then this year, he drafted JMS. So you're talking about three offensive linemen in the top 67 out of two drafts. That's an investment in the offensive line, specifically the interior offensive line, but he also got that right tackle. We know we needed a center. John Michael Schmitz ended up falling to them in the second round. We know that they were really nervous that that was not going to happen, that the Chicago Bears are going to select John Michael Schmitz. Luckily, that did not materialize. Then you got to think about the defensive line as well. This past season, the defensive line sucked. The Giants couldn't do all that much about upgrading the defensive line. They didn't have a lot of cap because of the prior regime, as you already discussed. But now... You were able to get Sean Robinson, which we all kind of thought was a pipe dream when that came up because the Giants had already signed Raheem Nunez, Rochez, Nacho, but they got both of these guys. Those are two legit starters who can now rotate and be a significant upgrade over the players who were spelling Dexter Lawrence and Leonard Williams last year, the Justin Ellis's of the world, the Ryder Andersons and players like that. And I like Ryder Anderson, but Sean Robinson and Raheem Nunez, Rochez would start on any other football team more than likely. And now you have that as your four interior defensive linemen. That is a complete and utter upgrade over the 28th ranked rushing defense last year in terms of yards allowed. And we also know that the rushing yards allowed, it's not always on the interior defensive line room, but the Giants struggle with power gap. It's going to be much harder 
for these offenses to run counter, to run power gap off tackle when you can't block down on that four eye technique. You can't block down on that four technique. And now that edge can really keep that rushing lane narrow, maybe spill everybody out to the overhang, the apex and the alley defenders. So now you're elongating the rushing path instead of letting them get north to south. And that's something that we saw last year against a lot of zone rushing teams. We saw it against Seattle and we saw it against the Tennessee Titans. But the power gap ones were an issue because the four techniques and four eyes were just getting washed out, specifically when Dexter Lawrence was not out there and the first team was not out there with Leonard Williams and when Nick Williams was also on the team before the bye week, before he suffered the peck injury. So upgrading the interior defensive line and the offensive line is the fifth best thing on my list that Joe Shane has done. And I think he's done a great job early in his tenure. Yeah, you nailed this one, Nick. I have the same thing as my number five, my fifth best move by Joe Shane, trench investments. And like I said earlier, this is the most important thing he's done, but it's not the number one move ranked for us because we're ranking based on value and based on how he's differentiated himself versus other general managers. But having said that, he's on the right path. You need to invest in the trenches. It can be boiled down to something as simple as, and I'm glad that me and you agree on this, Nick, because like, you know, we might not, and there might be, you know, other ways to go about it technically, but we both agree and we're pretty strong in our stance that building the interior offensive and defensive lines out is the best way to win football games. Overall, you need to find the quarterback that's most important, at least for me, and then trenches, and then the rest can fall into place. Receivers can play better than you expect when there's good offensive line play. Corners can play better than you expect when there's good defensive line play. Linebackers can play better than you expect when there's good defensive line play. But one thing that just, and running backs can play better than you expect when there's good offensive line play. But one thing that you just don't see happening all that much is quarterbacks and receivers and running backs playing that great when there's bad offensive line play. And you don't really see corners playing that great when there's no pass rush. Some corners do, Sauce Garner, but they have a pass rush. I mean, like, it's really the lifeblood of everything. I'm glad he's done it, Nick. You went over the importance of the run defense. So I'm going to focus a little bit on the offensive line here. And I just want to go over something that I find very interesting because in the past, we've heard from those Giants fans who have a different memory of what went down that Jerry Reese invested in the offensive line. Why is this so important that you're, why are you making a point to say that Joe Shane used three picks in the top 67 overall in just two draft classes? Jerry Reese did the same. It didn't work because he didn't find the right guys, but this is a bad memory of what actually happened. So Three picks in the top 67 overall for Joe Shane. That's obviously over 100%, right? But let's use that criteria to evaluate the kind of investment that Jerry Reese, the Giants' former general manager, made in the offensive line. Jerry Reese had 11 draft classes. In 2007, he used no picks in the top 67 on offensive line. In 2008, he used no picks in the top 67 on the offensive line. In 2009, he selected Will Beattie at 60 overall. That's one. In 2010, none. In 2011, none. In 2012, nothing. So we're still at one. Justin Pugh at 19 overall in 2013. That's two. Weston Richburg at 43 overall in 2014. That's three. Eric Flowers at 2015, uh, in 2015 at nine overall. That's four total. Nothing in 2016. Nothing in 2017. Remember, that was famously when he picked Evan Ingram over Ryan Ramchek and TJ Watt. So that's, that's four total picks in the top 67 in 11 draft classes for Jerry Reese. Just 36% of his draft classes did he use a t- even one pick in the top 67 overall. Joe Shane's already done it in 100% of his draft classes, and he's done it twice in one class. So you cannot compare those two. There is no comparison mathematically or in reality. Anything that you would use to compare is not based in fact. So I do appreciate that Joe Shane has said, I don't care. We need to invest in this offensive line. And he's done it despite having Nick an elite left tackle already on his roster that he luckily, you know, he fortunately inherited. So he knew that it didn't matter. He still understood the importance of investing in this offensive line 
early on. We saw it in this class. We saw it in last class. And I think we're going to continue to see it moving forward. I think that's an excellent point, Dan. But I want to ask you, and I know this is kind of deviating from what we're discussing. Let's go back to 2017 for a second. How freaking mad were you that the Giants drafted Evan Ingram over two Wisconsin Badgers who ended up being, and you didn't know this at the time, ended up being like all pro type players? Yeah, Uh, I'll say this. TJ Watt, I was not in a good, I wasn't as advanced as a football mind at the time because it was 2017. I hadn't really been doing film work yet. I was just like a big football fan. And so I used in my head at the time, I was still one of those fans who was like, DJ Watt, three, four outside of edge rusher. The Giants are running a strict four, three. I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't know if it fits because I knew he was special at Wisconsin. He was special. He was a special player. Like then again, all those kind of outside linebackers producing that Leonard system, but he was still like, you could tell he was special. So Watt was a weird one for me because of that three four four three garbage. And now, like, if I look back at it now, I'd be like, I don't care what system he could play. In, like, you'll figure it out. Just he will rush the passer. Ramchek was a weird one because he kind of like transferred in from Wisconsin Whitewater late. Was a tight end, then he became a tackle. Had injuries even at Wisconsin. That really that was the really the big factor was the injury profile at Wisconsin. So it's part of why he fell so far in the draft. Obviously, the Saints did a great job scouting him, and they're like. The injuries aren't going to continue. They're luck-based. And they were right. And he's had some injuries, but I mean, everyone has injuries. But yeah, at the time, I don't think I was as mad as I, as I, you know, looking back, you can realize how bad of a decision that was. Because if they had Ramchek right now, or they wouldn't have had to draft Neil and they could have drafted Garrett, Garrett Wilson, or if they had TJ Watt right now, you know, you can go on and on here. I'm talking about how much of an impact those players would have made. The butterfly effect of one decision. It really <laughs> yeah. is. Because if you added Ramchek, who would have known what would happen to the end of Eli Manning's career True. with Daniel Jones? Be a, there's so many things that would have changed. You could have added Ramchek and signed Andrew Whitworth in that same offseason. They had that opportunity. Whitworth said, I wanted to go to the Giants. We didn't get a yeah. call. We called their agent. Jerry Reese wasn't interested. They signed Brandon Marshall instead. You put Andrew Whitworth at left tackle, and then he was, you know, Super Bowl left tackle for the Rams. You put him at left tackle, Ryan Ramchick at right tackle. Who knows what would have happened with Eli? You're right. Who knows? And Odell. Think about it. Maybe Eli would have been able to get the football through Odell Beckham Jr. He would have never complained and been petulant and acted the way he did. And then he would still be with the New York Giants. But again, the whole team would be different. Everything (laughs) would be dry. Yeah, everything changes. The butterfly effect. The injuries might have not happened for Beckham and all those things. But you know, that that's that's life. That's football. And the Giants didn't make those decisions. Jerry Reese decided. The way to win this thing is by giving Eli another weapon and going into a season with Eric Flowers at left tackle and Bobby Hart at right tackle. Just mind-boggling decision. That When those things go down, Nick, you do get the for a quick second in your brain. It clicks just for a second. You say to yourself, can I do a better job than this NFL general manager? <laughs> you know you can't. You know you're wrong. You know there's so many things that are involved in the job that you have no idea how to do. You're not qualified for, and you would need to be walked through, like babied through. But in that moment, right. you're like, how the hell – is it that hard to understand that you can't go into a season with Eric Flowers and Bobby Hart as your offensive tackles? But with a statue know. back there as yeah. well, an old right. statue. As, yeah. oh, it's such a such a depressing time back then. But now we're here. It's 2023. We have Brian Dable and we have Joe Shane, and it's much better, much happier. Let's get into your fourth best move from a value standpoint. I have this limited to Isaiah Hodgins, but I think you can branch out and just say the pro scouting department. And I don't want to get too much into that because, you know, spoiler alert, I might be discussing that a little bit later as well. But you can group in Fabian Moreau, you can group in Nick McLeod into this conversation. But to focus on Isaiah Hodgins, Dan, how many 
wide receivers get claimed to a team that they are not familiar with. And yes, I know he was with Brian Dable with the bills, but still a team, a different environment, a different quarterback that he hasn't worked with has, does not have a rapport with him. How many times do you see a wide receiver who is relatively unknown, a six round pick out of Oregon state a couple years prior, come into a team and then be one of the focal points of the offense, not only one of the focal points of the offense, but help transform the offense from this stagnant 12 personnel. We're going to try to run the football and kick field goals. We don't have really the ability to create explosive plays. Our 11 personnel quick passing game is hit or miss transform that offense into a consistent 11 personnel approach that also assisted the running game. Because remember the running game sucked in 12 personnel. Then it got efficient out of 11 personnel, the way defenses were playing the New York giants. I think there was a sound and reasonable argument to be made. The impetus to that was Isaiah Hodgins. And I think a lot of that, and we brought this up before, and I've actually heard it referenced since we brought it up by, by somebody about the Detroit lions game. The Detroit Lions game, the Giants were getting their asses kicked. They lined up like 90% in 11 personnel. Isaiah Hodgins went out there. It's not like he was overly productive in that game. I think he only had like three catches, but you're getting valuable reps in an offense that is a little bit foreign to you with Daniel Jones as your quarterback. During that game, remember what happened. Wondell Robinson got injured. So that put even more pressure on Isaiah Hodgins to step up along with Darius Slayton because the wide receiver room was just getting decimated at that point. And Isaiah Hodgins seized the day. He full-on event sevenfold the entire situation and ended up taking this offense to a level that we did not necessarily believe it could reach. And that's something that we talked about all throughout the season. If you go back and listen to some of our old podcasts, we're like, look, we just want to see consistency from Daniel Jones and the passing attack. We're not seeing consistency. All we were doing was bitching about the Giants offense in Houston. We're like, yeah, Saquon Barkley had 36 touches, 35 carries against the Houston Texans, and they won. But how sustainable is that? It's not really all that sustainable in the modern NFL. But the presence of Isaiah Hodgins allowed Daniel Jones to flourish in 11 personnel quick hitting offense led by Mike Kafka and Brian Dable. And I think just identifying Joe Shane, identifying that this player has that type of potential was one of the more excellent moves that we've seen from this general manager. Yeah, you nailed this one. This one for me claiming Isaiah Hodgins is number two on my list. And if there wasn't a, a far and away runaway pick for number one, this would be number one for me. It's definitely a teardrop between this and three and even four and five. To me, this is where he differentiates himself to the GM. And I do appreciate the claims of like Nick McLeod and all those other players. I don't follow all 32 other teams, Nick, but I do get the feeling there are some more claims like McLeod's out there. It's hard to say, but I don't think there's many, many kinds of claims like Isaiah Hodgins that go down in a single season, let alone like if you really looked at it, few years. You probably have to go every few years to find somebody who makes that kind of impact right away after being claimed at a position where, yes, you mentioned he played in Buffalo. He kind of knew what Dable was all about, but it's not the same system. Brian Dable's working with Mike Kafka. Mike Kafka has some of his own concepts involved in this offense. The, the, you know, even the terminology is probably different. And most importantly than any of that, the quarterback's different. He had to build his rapport with Daniel Jones, and we know how important rapport is for a quarterback and a wide receiver and for an NFL passing game. He had to build that from scratch within days to then get on the field like you mentioned. And like you said, he wasn't all that productive, but he was kind of when you look at the routes he ran and how he got open. And they knew it right away too, the Giants, because right away they started to design plays to get him the football. And right away you saw with Isaiah Hodgins, the rapport build with Daniel Jones just 
snap like that. Isaiah Hodgins, I think, had an 84% uh, catch percent. That's on that's on target targetable catches around. Sorry, targetable catches around him, and he didn't drop an actual pass on the season. Scored a touchdown in four of his last five games. I felt like he really developed in the red zone as a receiver. His timing with Daniel Jones was excellent there. It felt like on scramble drills where Jones would climb the pocket and move to his right laterally. Isaiah Hodgins knew exactly where to go to get open. It felt like on those quick whip routes, he did a great job of using his footwork, his head fakes to get open. I'm even thinking of like the 10 to 15 yards quick hitting range, Nick, that intermediate range. I don't know if there was a single receiver on the Giants all season long, including the guys who got to play with Jones in August throughout training camp and get reps down in September and October and whatever, who had better timing with Daniel Jones than Isaiah Hodgins. You look at some of those intermediate in-breaking routes. Someone posted one recently just discussing Isaiah Hodgins, a fantasy guy. Uh, shout out to, I forget who it was on Twitter. I retweeted you with a quote tweet. And it was just a quick in-breaking route in the intermediate range. And Isaiah Hodgins did such a good job of setting up the route with his feet, like we always see him, with his head shakes, and then getting open to catch the football. That chemistry he developed with Jones in such a short period of time shows me how special he could potentially be as a player. Obviously, those who listen to this know how high we are in him and how important and great of a move that was by Joe Shane. So to me, claiming Isaiah Hodgins, just something you don't see and something I don't even remember. I'm not even sure the Giants made a claim like this ever in my history as a fan. Chase Blackburn, I know they once picked him off off the streets and he played for them again. Or maybe it wasn't Blackburn. I forget who it was who like had a nice second run with the Giants. They've done it, some, it might have been Blackburn. Yeah, they like, I can't think of too many other moves, though, especially at a position like receiver, where, again, it does matter so much if you're on yeah. the same page and the timing is right. So this was just a knock it out move. And yes, he had a little bit of a uh, edge because he worked in Buffalo, but that doesn't matter. Like he saw the opportunity. He's like, this dude is sitting on their on their practice squad and we're not going to let that happen anymore. And it was a very wise move, but let's also put ourselves back in that time frame. What happened in Jacksonville a few weeks prior to Isaiah Hodgins arriving in New York? Daniel Bellinger, who was one of the more impactful players in the red zone, ends up getting punched in the eye essentially. And he misses, I think, all the way up until week 13, if I'm not mistaken. Isaiah Hodgins, when Daniel Bellinger was missing, ends up inserting himself into that lineup and becoming that reliable option. And then we saw once Daniel Bellinger even returned, we saw Isaiah Hodgins kind of assume that role in the red zone. Remember the whip route that you referenced against Washington? That was Daniel Bellinger's first time back. And I don't know if Isaiah Hodgins gets those valuable reps in practice, maybe as one of the primary red zone targets, if Daniel Bellinger is there. So with Isaiah Hodgins in general, just absolutely seizing the moment, like the opportunity was gifted to him. There were a lot of injuries, but so many players received that opportunity and then they flounder or they don't work hard enough for it. And Isaiah Hodgins was the exact opposite of that. Despite not being the fastest, like that's like the sexy trait that everybody thinks about that's synonymous with wide yeah. receivers. Fast, quick, all those things. I would argue that Isaiah Hodgins for his size is quick, but he's not really fast, I guess you could say. But like we always say, man, and I don't want to be redundant here, but it's this. And this is the most important part. And for the ones listening on the podcast, I'm pointing to my brain. It's all about your smarts, your intelligence, and where you're going to be based on what the defense is doing. The defense does something different post-snap. And a quarterback needs to be on the same page with the wide receiver. We've heard Joe Shane say several times, that is what they're looking for in wide receivers. And who embodies that more than Isaiah Hodgins on this roster? Nobody, in my opinion, right now. I mean, maybe Sterling Shepard, if he gets back on the field, just because he developed such a good rapport with Jones over his career, and he's a smart but as well, but nobody right now that's healthy and nobody, at least of the younger assets the Giants have. And what you just said is so important, but it's not really viewed as important. I feel like across the NFL landscape with fans, because it's hard to quantify and it's hard to understand, but I'm just going to give a recent example. I was listening to a podcast that George Kittle was on 
and he discussed the different ways that Travis Kelsey attacks defenses based on literally the most minutia of the coverages and how understanding he is of every single coverage and the depth that he and Kittle was talking about, the depth he runs his routes depending on those factors. And he said, I the, the tight ends I've been around, not that many do that. I think he almost said like no one did, does that. And you think about it, like how has Travis Kelsey been this dominant at the NFL level? He's not really like the biggest freak of nature. He's a freak. Obviously, they're all freaks. They're NFL players, and he's a bigger player. But he's not Rob Gronkowski. That's not the same kind of athlete, in my opinion, at all. And yet, he is effectively a more effective receiver, I think, than Gronk. I still think Gronk is the best tight end of all time because of his blocking factor. But receiving-wise, Kelsey might be the best tight end of all time. And a big factor in that is the mental aspect that you went over with Hodgins. And I think that's what differentiates him. But there's other factors. He does a great job catching away from his frame. He doesn't drop passes. He catches the tough passes when you throw him into coverage. He does a really, really, really good job, in my opinion, of manipulating the sideline and understanding the spatial awareness around there. That's where he really reminds me the most of like an Imani Toomer type that we've had. So for me with Hodgins, I think that because he's not super fast, Nick, no one really cares about him. But those who are watching the tape are like, oh, my God, this dude gets open all the time, catches everything in his vicinity, understands coverages, understands where to sit in zone, understands the red zone really well, which is like our biggest factor that's killed us over the years. And so all of that combined, this to me is uh, the second best move Joe Shane's made. And he also knows adjacent coverages as well. If you're in man coverage, say if you're on one side of the football field. It's a two-by-two two set. So it's like you and Richie James or whoever running a route. Richie James running to the flat, you're going to sit on the curl. You know you have the defender ahead of you. You know the flat guy is going to expand with Richie James, and then there's going to be an opening right there. In terms of positioning and leverage, and I know I'm being a little redundant here, but in terms of positioning and leverage, it's hard for me to find a receiver on this team that understands precisely where to be in terms of that and gives Daniel Jones the best chance of completing that pass. And these passes, they're like six, seven, eight yards, no yak type plays, not right. the sexiest thing in the world. In my opinion, just watching the tape, those are the types of plays that get you from second and 10 to third and one or third and two, or maybe a third and six moves the chains. And those are the types of plays that end up resulting in touchdowns, resulting in seven points and resulting ultimately in wins. Yeah, and sometimes those are the plays that lead to a second and two where the Giants can then call something in the playbook they wouldn't be able to call on a second and 10 if they didn't connect, the receiver yeah. didn't find the space. It's like, it's a when you're moving the offense the way they did at the end of that season, which is like you said, a lot of shotgun, 11 personnel, quick hitting, timing-based offense, you need timing-based receivers. And he is the number one timing. I mean, Richard James did a good job of it as well. I just feel like his role in the offense was more tailored to success. I feel like he had a lot more of the layup routes. Isaiah Hodgins did it from the outside more often. I think he was 87% lined up on the outside. Like it is a lot harder to win on the outside than in the slot. And Isaiah Hodgins did not blink at that, uh, you know, at that task. Okay. So that was your number four. That was my number two. I'll go into my number four right now, Nick. Uh, my number four on the best five best move Joe Shane has made in his two years as general manager is not panic trading for Chase Claypool, et cetera, at the 2022 trade deadline, any wide receiver. So we look back at that deadline. The Giants were in an interesting position. They were winning football games. They didn't really have the talent they hoped they had at receiver. There wasn't really any plan at the time, though. Obviously, the Giants were looking into Isaiah Hodgins. By the time, we were like, what's going to happen here? There's not that much talent at receiver. Should we go out and trade for a Chase Claypool? Should we go out or trade for a Jerry Judy? And I'm, I'm, from what I've heard, the Broncos were strict on looking for a first-round pick and more for Jerry Judy. Eventually, the Chicago Bears traded 
their second round pick for Je- for Chase Claypool, which ends up being the first pick of the second round, known in many circles as like one of the most valuable picks in the draft. Like, yes, you'd rather have the last pick of the first round because you get the fifth year option, but that first pick on day two, everyone's thought about it and they've looked into it and they might be like, I got to trade up and get this guy. You can get incredible capital from trading back. Obviously, the Bears weren't really worried about that. They were so hyper-focused on, let's make this right. Let's get him weapons. Let's get Justin Fields weapons. But instead of focusing on what's at hand and what you need to do right now or what needs to be solved right now, the focus should always be on what's the best way to achieve what we need to do. We need to find a receiver, and we need to find a weapon for Justin Fields or Daniel Jones in this scenario. But the best way to do that from a value standpoint and from an asset allocation standpoint isn't always just do the first thing that comes to your mind. That was the Dave Gettleman way. The Giants were light on corner. Do the first thing that comes to your mind. Let's use the third round supplemental pick, draft pick on Sam Beal. The Giants were light at, the Giants felt like they needed a tight end. Let's do the first thing that comes to mind. Sign Kyle Rudolph. The Giants were light at uh, on the offensive line. Let's do the first thing that comes to mind. Sign Patrick Omame. Sign Nate Solder. This is what happens when you panic move. This is what happens when you force things. This is what happens when you just say, I need to fix this right now. Instead of looking at it like Joe Shane did and say, yeah, we need to fix this. We need to add skill players for, for the Giants and for Daniel Jones. But maybe I can do that in the offseason at a much lesser cost. And the answer is, yes, he could. And yes, he did. He used a third-round pick on Jalen Hyatt. He traded a late third-rounder, a supplemental draft pick for Darren Waller. These are both better weapons than Chase Claypool, and they didn't cost anywhere near the same draft capital or capital overall. So to me, that feel, Nick, it's just that feel of a GM. I felt like the entire time during Gettleman's tenure, he didn't have a good feel. He was just shooting from the hip at all times. Bang, 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 bang. I need this. I need that. I need this. Joe Shane has such a better feel for being a general manager. Feel is incredibly important because you want to be the cutting edge GM. You want to be the Howie Roseman. You want to be the guy that always feels like you're getting the the guy who always you makes a trade. And it's like we look back like, how did Howie Roseman do that? How is he ripping off GMs left and right? And people are even saying like on Twitter, like if, if Howie calls, don't even pick up the phone. You want to get to that point? Well, one way to get there is by being smooth being patient, being calculated. The way to not get there is by jamming moves, jamming a trade for Chase Claypool, jamming Sam Beal, things like that. So it just was a big moment for me. It's when I felt locked into Joe Shane, and so I wanted to put it on my list at number four. I love it. I had it just off the list, but I do believe it's incredibly important because the Chase Claypool thing ended up being a disaster for Chicago. A lot of people predicted that at the time. I wonder, though, and I I don't think Joe Shane would have done this but Joe Shane had contingency plans in place. Like he brought in Isaiah Hodgins during the bye week and Isaiah Hodgins got accustomed. We already talked about that. But Wando Robinson was still healthy at that time. I'm wondering if Wando Robinson wasn't healthy, if he would have made a reactionary type of trade to possibly bring somebody in just because the Giants were in a position to make a playoff run in the NFC. It's interesting to think about. I would lean toward he wouldn't because I just don't think that's his way. And I really feel very confident in that. And to me, that makes me happy. Like I would never want him to do any, no matter where the season's headed. And I mean, things are different, right? If you're, if you have Patrick Mahomes on your team and you have a slew of injuries, yeah. you know that you can just do very little to help Patrick Mahomes. And that could be the difference. Cause he's that good. Right. I mean, I saw some crazy stat on Mahomes yesterday where I think he has like the most comeback victories in the NFL from a probability win probability standpoint of any quarterback since 1999, which is just, absolutely absurd uh, to show the level he's on. So if you have that, yeah, go for it. Like, you know, play for now at all times. But if you're a young quarterback like Daniel Jones, you're developing, you feel like he's at the start of where you think he can get to. Obviously they signed that for your contract. They think there's going to be progression there. Why panic, right? 
you have plenty of time to play this thing out. It's just make sure that the moves you make now are going to help you in the future. They're not just going to help you now. And I think Joe Shane is big on that. I agree, but I'll say this. I think it all comes down to value. And I think you would agree with that as well. Yeah. I don't think Joe Shane would, would just kind of go into this blindly and stubbornly being like, nope, we're not going to do that. I think he was entertaining maybe Jerry Judy. I think they were asking for like a first round pick or something yeah. stupid, something silly. But if they were willing to give him up for maybe a third, maybe Joe Shane would have pulled the trigger on something like that. I think he has a very open approach to a lot of this type of stuff, but he's not going to be bullied and he's not going to be reactionary to your point. And that's why I think it's a very just a position to have it in the top five for you. For sure. All right, let's move on to the next one. Number three, I think it's the same for both of us. So you can hit it first. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, so for number three, Dan, I have specifically written down drafting Daniel Bellinger in the fourth round of the 2022 draft. But I want to look at it from a little bit more of a broad standpoint and just say finding day three gems. And by gem, I'm not even talking about a pro bowler or something like just somebody who can be a reliable, capable, above average starter for you. And I think that's what Daniel Bellinger is. And now people will be like, well, they traded for Darren Waller. It's like, that's separate from the fact. I think if Daniel Bellinger were to be on any other team, or if Daniel Bellinger was tight end one for the Giants right now, tight end is not an issue that they need to upgrade over. In my opinion, I think Daniel Bellinger has that much upside and that much potential. But when you nail day three picks, your ability to have them under a cost-controlled contract, your ability to go deep into the playoffs and actually make real Super Bowl runs if you have the right quarterback and coach in place significantly, Dan, increases because you have these cheap contracts and these players that you're paying absolutely nothing for and they're competent football players. They stay healthy. You can realistically win football games. And that's just not something that we've seen from the Giants over the last decade. They have not nailed day three. We've seen teams, the Seattle Seahawks nailed a bunch of their day three picks and they were able to have a Super Bowl, uh, uh, two Super Bowl appearances and one Super Bowl victory. I mean, Russell Wilson was a day two pick, but he was a round three pick. That's also huge. But you got like Richard Sherman, who is a 
perennial all pro during his time as a, as a Seattle Seahawk. And even after that, he was still a really good football player. When you are able to hit your day three picks, it goes a long way for you. And Joe Shane, it's hard to really judge this right now because how do we know how good some of those guys were who were rookies? You don't. Most of them were injured. So it's really hard to judge. And we haven't seen the guys from the 2023 draft yet. But Daniel Bellinger, to me, has already proven to be a home run in the fourth round. And if he can keep doing that, and time will tell, but if he can keep doing that, Dan, then to me, man, that's that's excellent for the Giants' future and their potential for winning Super Bowls. I completely agree with you. Drafting Daniel Bellinger at 112 overall was my third best move he's made so far. I think we both know from the film that Daniel Bellinger is a really high upside tight end who's already has a base level of production he can provide the Giants, which is already pretty high. We both, I mean, if you listen to this podcast enough, you know the two guys we think are better on film than get credit for are probably Bellinger and Hodgins. Those are probably one and two for us. There's other guys who make the list. We like Jihad Ward and his contribution. Plenty of guys that are like in that second tier of probably contributors that are better on tape than they get credit for. But number one and two are Isaiah Hodgins and Daniel Bellinger without a doubt. And you look at the Bellinger pick at 112 overall, there's not a lot of good draft picks in the NFL over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the hundreds. There's just not. And so when you hit, there's different levels to it, right? Like, I agree with you. What you really want to look for is just what you describe. But you can get more. You mentioned Richard Sherman. You you know, the the um, blanking on his name, the kid from the Chiefs, the guard who, who is, is one of the best in the NFL. Yeah, Trey now. Smith. Trey Smith. Like, you can get Pro Bowl-level talent, too. I also think there is upside for Daniel Bellinger to be that Pro Bowl-level talent. Maybe it doesn't happen during the Darren Waller years because the receptions aren't there and the box score stats aren't there. But it might because there might be enough recognition for what he does as a blocker in addition to what he does as a receiver. And I think there's just so much more meat on the bone for him as a receiver. When they made this pick, it wasn't Charlie Kohler. Like Charlie Kohler had a really productive career at Iowa state. We liked his film, right? We thought he had some upside for sure, yeah. but they said, we're not looking at production at Iowa state at a big school. We're going to scout this thing out. We're going to find someone who we feel can develop. And it's insane how fast Daniel Bellinger developed from playing at San Diego state to being able to block NFL defensive linemen to being able to run routes at the NFL level, everything thrown in his direction is caught to develop a level of chemistry with Daniel Jones. And I'm excited to eventually hear about that level of chemistry with Daniel Jones, but to develop a level of chemistry with Daniel Jones that fast shows that he wasn't the project that he was supposed to be because he's supposed to be a project. He's coming from San Diego state. He has this unbelievable re relative athletic score. He's a cred incredible athlete. He's younger on the younger side. He's everything you want in just the developmental bet on traits because you know, over the course of history, we've learned, I don't want to say history, but over the course of the last five years, we've learned the best way to find NFL tight ends, and they're really hard to find. It's one of the hardest positions to develop and find in the NFL. The best way to do it is to bet on age and traits, and they did that with Bellinger, but they bet on more than that. They bet on him as a person, right? His work ethic is through the roof. He shows up in Giants camp. Uh, I don't want to say converting because somebody said uh, they didn't like the terminology and it's incorrect. So replacing X amount of pounds of fat with X amount of pounds of muscle because he weighs the same or less now, he told reporters, despite the fact that he's rocked up with muscle at this point. So, like, that's a work ethic right there. Think of how hard he hit the offseason. Then he could take a break, right? Like, now's the time for Giants players to chill, go on vacation, spend time with family. But he's going to go to tight end you again for the second straight offseason in Nashville to work on his craft and to learn from Travis Kelsey, to learn from George Kittle. I actually heard Kittle speak about this, but they're bringing Jordan Reed in this year to teach releases to the tight ends. Jordan okay. Reed had the sickest release of any tight end I've like ever seen. So all of these factors that are in play for Daniel Bellinger show to me how special of a prospect he can be because he has everything you want from the tough, smart, dependable, the work ethic. We believe he's a better route runner and receiver than he's given credit for. And then he's shown, been able to show so far that will grow. The blocking in year one was just 
completely unexpected for me, at least, Nick. I felt like, yes, there was good tape of him blocking San Diego State, but I was like, all right, it's San Diego State. And these guys, some of these guys he's blocking are like 250. Now he's going to go up against like, you know, the NFC East defensive lineman. Montez Sweat, like, what are you going to do against that? And, you know, he held his own throughout the entire season, played, got injured, came back. Like, it's everything you could ask for. So to find that 112 overall, I think back, Nick, I don't remember the Giants really hitting on too many picks in these later rounds. You know, 2007 was amazing. They found Kevin Boss, another tight end. They found Amon Bradshaw. But, like, from 2008 through 2021 draft classes, like, how many times the Giants find someone with the upside and the built-in floor that's already been proven of a Daniel Ballinger? I would say Julian Love. And I, we might be different there, I but I would argue, we're different on that one for sure. I would argue Julian Love is one of those players, especially with the versatility and the intelligence. Again, something that's not necessarily quantifiable, but when you watch the tape and you see how many hats he can wear and you see when injuries happen, how he assumes different responsibilities and how that affects the rest of the defense. I think he's valuable, but the market didn't necessarily say he was because he only got paid $6 million. So maybe I'm wrong there, but that's just my opinion on Julian Love. And I think it's interesting with Daniel Bellingham because this is somebody who only had 68 catches throughout his entire college career. I could see Daniel Bellinger, if something were to happen to Darren Waller, I'm knocking on wood right now, ladies and gentlemen, but if something were to happen to Darren Waller, Daniel Bellinger could have 68 catches this year, yeah. I think. I think he is that talented, and I think he can take that first to second year jump. And that's just the receiving part, which is not something he was built as back at San Diego state. But when you think about him as a blocker, not only was he holding up at the point of attack and he was effective on the wham blocks, but think to when he was being used as a fullback. I think we saw it once against Chicago and then we saw it twice against Minnesota. And then we saw it against Indianapolis when he had the catch that went for, I think like 24 yards. Also remember that Indianapolis game. The Giants were struggling with DeForest Buckner. They were struggling with Gover Stewart. So how did Mike Kafka, Bobby Johnson, and Brian Dable combat that? They would align Daniel Bellinger basically as an H-back only behind the guard on some of these plays, and they would just have him cut DeForest Buckner on the backside, allowing the guard to release up to the second level to attack Bobby O'Karake or Zaire Franklin, depending on whatever side the play was run to. And they use that approach on a few different plays. Daniel Bellinger's a rookie. In order to have the trust to do that, to, to know the angles of approach and the angles of attack and, and to hold up on wham blocks against 300-pound Grover yeah. Stewart, who's one of the best interior defensive linemen in terms of run defending in the league, that's a lot of trust that you have in a player like Bellinger. And you saw it even early in the season with how they used Bellinger around the goal line, right? This is a rookie yeah. tight end. What rookie tight ends get used around the goal line like that, Dan? Not many. Reverse so for me, is, man, they're pitching in reverses. Like, think about pitching that. in reverses. <laughs> he had a rushing touchdown against Green Bay. He could have threw it too. Daniel yeah. Jones was open for a split second. He was like, that "Screw it, I'll cool. just." That would have been he cool. Did the right decision. He made the right decision, but it would have been pretty cool. It would, and I think there was another tight end. I got to watch the play, but I think there was somebody else was open. I don't exactly remember who. Yeah, I remember that, that too. That is so much trust that they put into this kid. So you know they loved his character, they loved his work ethic, and so far through one year, Joe Shane was proven right. Yeah, and I think the craziest part about Bellinger for us is from what we've seen as far as his movement skills go, and this is obviously what the Giants are banking on too, right? Like I said, massively great relative athletic score. He's just 22 years old. These are all the factors you like from 
what are, you know, what are upside and what can somebody move? How can somebody move on a field and differentiate themselves away from what I've seen on tape? I think there's so, so much more meat left on the bones, two areas specifically the seams, which I think he runs really well and will start to make plays there for the giants. Remember Daniel Jones found a little bit of a stretch run of very interesting fire. It felt like with Caden Smith in 2019, utilizing him up the seam. And I know he's been able to like in the past in that offense in the Shermer offense. Um, yeah. The Shermer offense, he used the seam a lot. Golden Tate, I said Caden Smith for that short stretch. So it's possible that you can refine that area of the field, especially with Waller on the field and different guys taking away attention, but also in the red zone. I think that's what's like, in my opinion, Daniel Bellinger is going to take the biggest jump in his NFL career. And not just like for us as fans, but for the mainstream is as a red zone weapon, because I think that, you know, going to tight end, you doing all the things that he's doing to help work on releases, all these different things to make an impact in the red zone. In addition to just getting that rapport up with Daniel Jones in the red zone, understanding the spatial awareness, understanding where to be, where Jones wants him to be. That's going to lead to more touchdowns. And that's what fans, not fans want to see, but that's what the mainstream media needs to see. All right, Dan, Jason Garrett's offense sucked, right? And we chastised it a lot on this podcast. But do you remember how he would approach attacking defenses early on first down with his big personnel? He would come out in like 12, 13 personnel and try to catch the defense in base. And then what would he do? Because he had Evan Ingram and that receiver. And oh, I thought you were talking about when he motioned the receiver in. No, 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 no. No, he had Evan Ingram. He had Caden Smith and he had like Levine Toilolo. So, he would spread those guys out and it would be like 13 personnel. So three tight ends out there, but they were spreading the entire field, trying to take advantage of mismatches and slow linebackers specifically with Evan Ingram when they would pass the football. If Lawrence Cager makes this team, which I'm not sure if he will, but if he does your 13 personnel package is Daniel Bellinger, Lawrence Cager, Darren Waller. The giants can come out on first down first play of the game for the offense with a 13 personnel package. And then, most likely the defensive coordinators, they haven't seen it yet. They're going to respond with base personnel. If they don't have athletic linebackers. You're going to be able to take advantage of those mismatches. Now, Mike Kafka and Brian Dable are far beyond Jason Garrett. We're well aware of that, but I think we're going to see some type of approach like that where 13 personnel comes out there. They all line on the line of scrimmage and then boom, they spread out. You have two guys outside the numbers and now you have linebackers in space against Lawrence Cager. And that is a true mismatch that I feel like the Giants will exploit. It is going to be great to see that mismatch on the field. I'll say one more thing as far as why this move kind of differentiates itself versus, um, let's say, some of the the, the solid moves they've made in, on day three. Like, Julian Love's a good example. He wore a lot of hats. I think in, in, in many ways, I underrated his impact on the team. We'll find out this year, really. It's like, we could be we could be missing him big time. But I feel like early in Julian Love's career, he didn't make the same kind of impact that Bellinger made right away. So to me, that's a good sign, that early breakout factor. And then for me, throughout it, even now, Julian Love never had the upside as a player that Bellinger has, both athletically and just overall the impact he can make. And maybe that's partially on the Giants for not putting him in the position he was in last year until last year, right? Like maybe that's partially on Patrick Graham. Like he didn't find the right role for him necessarily in the defenses before that. But I just feel like there's more upside. And that's what really has me so excited about Bellinger. I just feel like there's so much upside for him as a player. And I know, look, it sounds crazy to those listening in that maybe aren't as tuned into us or just picked us up in the off season or just finding us now. But if you listen to us during the season, you watch the film with us, you saw the impact that Bellinger and Hodgins were these types of players were making on a day by day, game by game, snap by snap basis, even when the ball didn't come their way. So those two, you know, those two players, Samir, definitely 
two and three for me with Joe Shane, but you have a different number two. So let's over go over the that. last. So I want to say one thing over the yeah. last 20 years, just because we put this forward and I think it's cool to look back on history. Yeah. You had Julian Love, but if we go back through history over the last 20 years, some of the other names in terms of day three picks that ended up being home runs, Brandon Jacobs was a fourth round pick. David Deal was a fifth round pick. This one's a little weird, but in terms of special teams, it's excellent. And he also holds a really near and dear place yeah. to every Giant fan's heart. And that's David Tyree, who was a sixth round pick. And then Devon Kennard for a more recent one. He was somebody who was drafted, I think, in the fifth round. And he ended up having a pretty solid career here in New York and signed a, a lucrative deal with, I think it was the Arizona Cardinals, represent yeah. State 48, if you're watching. Nah, I'm Jersey through and through, but still. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And then obviously like Bradshaw and, and boss were two of the biggest hits for Reese in his tenure. Yeah, but that's, yeah. you know, those are only a few guys in 20 years. It's like to get a Bellinger is not easy to get in two draft classes. So very, very excited about that one. What was number two on your list? I have trading the third round pick for Darren Waller, but I want to look at this more so from the lens of creating explosive plays. And I have some stats here. Despite struggling to create explosive plays last year, the Giants had Five come from behind victories before the bye week with only five explosive passing plays in that time span, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, because according to ESPN analytics, the Giants opponents in the second half had a 90.6% chance to win a 76.8% chance, a 73% chance, an 84% chance, and an 85% chance of victory in the Titans, Panthers, Packers, Ravens, and Jaguar games, respectively. So the Giants mounted comebacks without a consistent explosive passing attack. And you can look at the Sterling Shepard play. That's kind of a one-off. That's one exception that happened in week one. However, if you look at it, the reason Big Blue was able to claw their way back into these games was due to offensive efficiency, which is not statistically that historically carries over year to year. So adding another dimension to this offense, another element wasn't only imperative for the growth of Daniel Jones, the quarterback that they just invested in, but to the overall ability to stress defenses and attack quickly when opportunities arise. And that's not necessarily something the Giants did fantastically last season, despite them outperforming expectations. So we needed to add explosive playmakers. And I think you can group Paris Campbell into this. You got that on a low-cost contract, and I think that's a high upside type of signing. I think bringing back Darius Slayton plays into this, which is just the microcosm of the meritocracy that's being cultivated here under this regime is Darius Slayton. Darius Slayton is a player who a lot of people thought were going to be cut. Injuries happen. He just keeps battling and battling. Next thing you know, he ends up being the leading receiver for the New York Giants, but mostly Darren Waller. We talked a lot, Dan. Are the Giants going to trade for T. Higgins? Are they going to trade for Brandon Ayuk? How are they going to find that receiver, that number one receiving threat? The number one receiver wasn't out there to be had at a cost-effective, reasonable price. I think the Giants would have had to overpay for some of the receivers that were being rumored to them. They weren't going to do that, and they weren't in a position to do that. So Dave Ziegler, Joe Shane, old friends, talked at the Combine. Darren Waller has had a couple down seasons, a little bit injured. He's north of 30 now. So Joe Shane offered the 100th pick that the Giants acquired in the Kadarius Tony trade for Darren Waller, a high upside player who, if he stays healthy, can help transform this offense to something that we haven't seen in quite a while, especially if 26 is back. And we're all hoping 26 is back for this season. I think it's going to really stress defensive coordinators. Even though we haven't seen it yet, I think investing in explosive playmakers, the biggest vulnerability of the 2022 offense was not only a, a crucial move, but the necessary move to take the Giants offense to the next level. And if you're really going to invest in Daniel Jones, you have to create those explosive plays or at least give him playmakers to allow him to do so. And I really like that pick for you, Nick, especially because think about how he did it, right? What was the asset allocation and the cost for doing it? 
Not much. Like you can go about like every, I'm sure like a lot of these GMs are thinking we got to add explosive playmakers for our quarterback or whatever it would be. The bears obviously have tried to do that. The giants now as well, but Joe Shane did it in a really interesting way. Isaiah Hodgins didn't cost him anything. Darren Waller, you said third round pick. It's a third round pick, but it was a supplemental third round pick, right? That's like, that's the point where you get like the, um, like the type of players you're going to get like an O'Shane Zimenez in that range, right? You're going to get a Matt Parrott in that range. I love when you say his name, by the way. Zimenez? Yeah. Is it supposed to be Ximenez? Zimenez. Zimenez. Oh, I always thought it was Zimenez. All right. Shane Zimenez. You get a Zimenez. You get a Matt Parrott. Like, these are just like gambles. They don't have much floor. They have some ceiling, you think, as a GM, right? Like, I'm not so sure Zimenez had the ceiling uh, Dave Gettleman ever expect them to, but Matt Parrott has some a ceiling, right? Like if it can all click for him, look at his body type. Like I remember being at um, the game we saw together last year, the, there the scrimmage in, in August. And I was looking at the offensive line group together. I was like, there, there there's three guys who look like they're imposing offensive linemen out there. Um, excuse me, Neil and Andrew Thomas. The rest of them kind of look small to me, to be honest. And McCathan, but the rest of them look kind of small to me. And that's just like NFL. Like you don't have to be huge to be a great player. Jason Kelsey's a good example of that on the offensive line, but that parrot had upside, but you're still getting gambles there. And so that wasn't a high investment either. Paris Campbell signed him for nothing, right? Like they took the gamble. They said, we're going to buy into the price is low because bad quarterback play because unlucky injuries, because a system that doesn't really focus and feature him. We saw Richie James look really good in this really easy role. We developed for him. And I, I'm not trying to take anything away from James. He was a good player, but the role is a very, it's a very receiver friendly role, that slot role on this current Giants offense. And so we said, let's find a low investment. So I think to add to your point, Nick, it's the fact that he added all these weapons and all these potential explosive playmakers for Jones. And he did it without having to break the bank. He did it without having to uh, risk and gamble his future assets. It goes back to the point that we made earlier about how he's in control. He's calm. He's collected and he's calculated, which is a very important trait. The most important in my mind as a GM. And one more thing on Waller that I want to say. So that was very interesting. We kind of don't know where we're at with Waller yet. Like what kind of impact he'll make. He's been good in OTAs, but until we see it on the field and on the film, it's tough to know. And we know they're moving him around. He's already been featured, uh, I think, in the backfield at one point. He was the lone receiver in three by one multiple times, which we love. We want to see a lot of that. But regardless, they're moving him in motion. They're putting him in positions they want to get him in good matchups. So we're excited about the impact he can make. But I will say this. I was listening again, going back to this George Kittle interview. They were asking him, like, the best blocker in the NFL, or the best blocking tight end, the strongest tight end. They said the fastest tight end and the strongest tight end. Kittle said Walder was both of those. I was surprised to hear the strong one. Maybe he's talking about, yeah, go ahead. I think the strong one is in reference to at the catch point more than likely. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Maybe he's in referencing that. And I know you can read my mind sometimes. Maybe he's referencing to how good he is at the catch point. And you showed that when we when we looked at his film early after the, after the trade. Like this dude was making sick catches away from his frame at the catch point with great hand, strong hands. Like that's awesome. That's what I love. It's what made DeAndre Hopkins one of the better receivers in the NFL. It's like that one trait, Anquan Bolden. Anquan Bolden had a little more explosiveness than Hopkins, but that's his main trait too as well. And like, that's the trait that he brings to this offense that I'm super excited about. The fact that he also said he was the fastest, maybe that's a little bit giving him the benefit of the doubt. Evan Ingram is a tight end. Technically, I think he's probably a little bit faster, but I don't know. Waller moves, man. Waller chews up ground with those long strides. So I think you're right. Like you have all these moves grouped together and it's playmakers, but the one that might stand out and just make the biggest difference is Waller. If he can stay healthy. I think that's the, the hope in theory. Yeah. 
especially with what you could do with personnel packages, which we have covered pretty extensively on the podcast. I just think Joe Shane has received a situation where you would have coal and he's turned it into diamonds. And that's what you're looking for. Like a really crafty, smart general manager who doesn't have the best circumstances around him, but he's able to figure out a way to maximize the situation. I have one other thing before we go on, just because we kind of touched on this. How many new regimes, new head coach, new general managers take over football teams typically? And I know the Giants have somewhat of a unique situation because they ended up making the playoffs despite low expectations. But how many new regimes end up taking over the team and then they bring back the quarterback who they did not pick up the fifth year option on and everybody was writing off and they signed the wide receiver who everyone thought was going to be cut in the prior training camp. You usually have these front offices. They, they bring in their own guys. That's always the thing. We talked about that a lot when they signed Daniel Jones, but you can group Darius Slayton into this situation as well. We all thought Darius Slayton was gone. I, I did not think Darius Slayton was going to be retained by the New York Giants, especially after the Giants went and they signed Paris Campbell before they even brought back Darius Slayton. So the guy, yeah, Darius Slayton, he's gone, you know, Paris Campbell were, They bring back Darius Slayton. It's the meritocracy thing. It's like, we did not have you high before. It was clear we did not have you high. You were running like third team in training camp. But you proved to us that you deserve to be here through hard work, dedication, and then producing, obviously, on the football field. And I just think that sends such a good message to the rest of the NFL. Yeah, it does, because there was a guy in there they could have easily given snaps to, Kenny Galladay, who's making a ton of money, and they just didn't. They just straight up didn't from the very start. Like they didn't even do like the thing where like, ah, we'll play him like weeks one through three. We'll say like, look, he wasn't producing. Just right away. They're like the best option for us is not to play the $72 million guy. It's to play this guy instead. And that just says a lot to the point you just made. And I love, and we didn't touch on this, but I love the, all the Chiefs fans who were like, wow, the Giants are stupid for getting rid of Kadarius Tony. We didn't want to get rid of Kadarius Tony's talent. It was him as a person yeah. that we were departing from. We were getting rid of him because he was not buying in to what the Giants were doing. He was not learning the playbook. He was not putting the necessary work in to better himself. So now he goes to a more, I guess you could say, stable type of situation with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid, where he doesn't have to play a full complement of snaps. You bring him in on the red zone package and he's going to have success. So this is an Another reason why I really hope this Darren Waller trade works out. It's because now it's not just you traded a third round pick. That third round pick turned into Darren Waller. Now Darren Waller is having a direct impact on the New York Giants right now. And I'm not so sure anyone they could have taken in that range of the draft would have any impact, not only now, but ever on the Giants, because that's what you get at pick around pick 100. You get mostly misses. That's the end of the find the Daniel Bellingers and players like yeah, that. You can hit sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> the percentage is low. Um, and so. Yeah, you think you did a great job of explaining that. Yeah, and I think even you mentioned like the stable situation in Kansas City is good for Tony, maybe, but also look at what happened with Sky Moore in year one. Look what happened to Tyreek Hill in year one. Look what happened like every receiver in Andy Reid's system in the history of time and how hard it was for them to pick up the playbook, how hard it was them for them to get on the field. Matt Harmon did an eight-game sample size. Matt Harmon, receptive perception, did eight-game sample size of Darius Tony last year. In eight games, the dude ran 76 routes. I yeah. mean, that's insanity right there. He, he didn't get on the football field in Brian Dable's offense. I have no idea how he's going to get in the mix with Andy Reid. I just don't know because that's like the most complicated. Say it's one of the hardest systems to pick up besides Belichick's. It's like, all right, let's see what happens and let's go from there. But I mean, from the Giants he has packages, that's what it's going to come yeah. down to. He's a packaged player. Right. That means your upside is capped. Yeah, you might score touchdowns. You might be good for fantasy football every now and again, but you need specific package design for you because you can't handle the entire playbook. You know who doesn't need that? Darren Waller. Right away for the Giants. He, doesn't <laughs> need that. he can come in right away and play on all downs, be moved all around the formation like they're already doing with him. Exactly. So very exciting there. 
All right, let's get to the final thing that was number one on both of our lists. lists. Little differently termed and framed by us, so we'll go into different things, I believe. Um, but let's go into that right now. You can start us off. Dan and I did not communicate before we did this in terms of our list. I know there's some similarities here, but it wasn't like we were like, hey, I'm going to do this. You should do that. No, it wasn't like that at all. And the way I termed it, but I also agree with the way Dan termed it, is just assembling the front office. And I also want to group in the coaching staff. Surrounding yourself with competent, like-minded, yet not acquiescent football minds. Not obsequious type of personnel who's going to just be like, yeah, you're right, do that. No, people are going to challenge you for the betterment of the franchise, for the betterment of the New York football giants. And I think bringing in Dable is just example number one, right? You worked with him in Buffalo. You knew him very well. You guys are really good friends. You go out together. It's pretty cool. And it's definitely seemed to work out. He won coach of the year. But I also want to focus on the front office. Joe Shane ended up bringing in Brandon Brown from the Philadelphia Eagles to be his assistant general manager. And I feel like he's had a huge influence on what the New York Giants have done, kind of taking little bits of what Howie Roseman has done successfully with the Philadelphia Eagles and brought it to the New York Giants in terms of how they structure contracts, in terms of void years, in terms of things like that. But you also brought in guys like Chris Rossetti to help Tim McDonald, who was the nephew of John Mara, I believe. He's the nephew of John Mara. So first I should lay this out. The New York Giants over the last, ever since I've been covering the team, ever since I've been a fan of this team, this has been a very nepotism type of organization, right? A very conservative type of organization that promotes from within, that doesn't really go outside of the box to bring in different minds, people who were not maybe raised by your organization. So kudos to John Mara for breaking that mold after making the mistake of hiring Dave Gettleman and going out and getting Joe Shane. But once Joe Shane got in here, he was able to do what he had to do the necessary moves to put the Giants in a position for success by bringing in people like Chris Rossetti to be underneath Tim McDonald. And look at our pro personnel department. We've talked about Nick McLeod, Isaiah Hodgins, Fabian Morel. We talked about these guys. Those were excellent additions by the New York Giants that helped the Giants make the playoffs. I mean, the cornerback room itself was decimated. There was one point where I think it was like one cornerback on the roster. It was actually taking snaps during training camp and all those other players were identified by the pro personnel department. That is Tim McDonald. Again, that's somewhat nepotistic. I get it. But Chris Rossetti as well, who works under him, who's done an excellent job. Ryan Cowan, who the Giants just brought in. I believe he came from Tennessee. Dennis Hickey, who also, I think, worked with Joe Shane back with the Miami Dolphins. I brought up Chris Rossetti. It's just this front office that you have did an excellent job this past season identifying the pro personnel talent. But it's also making this New York Giants team a much more modern football operation. And that's the issue that I think we had with Dave Gettleman and a lot of these previous general managers. It just got really stale. And it was a a organization that just kept doing the same thing and the same thing over and over again. But now they kind of broke away from that and they're trying different things, more modern things that successful franchises in the NFL are doing right now. And that's what this is, Dan. It's a copycat league. And it's just good that the Giants are finally copying the successful patterns and formulas that other teams have been using over the last decade because it just got to a point where we were like, what the hell is going on here? Why are we doing this? This is a move that you would do back in 1990, not in 2018. And so now I just feel like we have true adults who understand how to devise a plan that is going to be conducive to success right now. wonder what you were referencing with that 1990 versus uh 2018 thing. That- I have no idea, man. <laughs> it was just random year. I picked out of my mind. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think to your point, like, this is not uh, yours is a little more of like 
ever expanding. And I think it's good to, to, to include all that because to your point, like some of these decisions they've made and the, and more importantly, like Joe Shane's willingness to defer some power, to not have this be all about him to understand like this collective process has led to some big moments. I believe, and this is not confirmed, but I believe we've heard that Brandon Brown played a massive role in the decision to draft Daniel Bellinger, which we believe mm -hmm. is the best value pick they've made so far in this regime by a wide margin. And so you don't have him in the mix. You maybe don't get that pick and you just have one guy running the show. You don't get that pick. Um, so I think that's really important as well. For me, it was a little bit more narrow, uh, narrow based. It was the decision to hire and empower Brian Dable. So for me, the biggest, there were tons of mistakes that went into the Dave Gettleman era, but by far the biggest one was he wasn't able to find and hire the right head coaches, head coach, let's just say, because if you get the right one, you don't need to keep going back to the well. And the most important thing I believe for a general manager is to hire the right head coach. And I am so convinced that the Giants have hired the right head coach because not only is Brian Dable in great offensive mind, and I'm very, for me, my head coaches, I want good offensive minds in the mix, because especially if you do it the other way. Let's say Detroit, for example, right now, Dan Campbell versus Ben Johnson. I got to be honest with you, Nick, if I was doing this podcast for the Lions and we get to the point next offseason where the Lions make a run, they go deep into the playoffs, their offense is top five in the NFL, I would be super pissed when we lose Ben Johnson to keep Dan Campbell. Those are the types of moves that would kill me. I would never want Dan Campbell over Ben Johnson. And so I think it's really important to get a guy like Brian Dable, who ha is already the Dan the Ben Johnson of the Giants offense. Like, yes, Mike Kafka played a big role as well. But the good news is, if and when Mike Kafka gets hired to be a head coach, I feel confident that Brian Dable can do the same kind of things offensively from a schematic standpoint. I don't know that I would feel that way with Dan Campbell if, they, if we lost the Ben Johnson type. So that's yeah. first thing. The second thing is, not only is this a coach who – is great from an offensive mind standpoint. I think he's actually what you want in a head coach from the leadership standpoint. I know there's different ways to go about it, but the way Joe Judge went about it never sat right with me. If you guys remember who were listening to this podcast years ago, I was never in on Judge. After that first season, I was one of the only people who were detracting from Judge. I didn't see it at all with him, and I was early on the get rid of him train the year, the year that they fired him. Never bought into it. To me, he always seemed phony. To me, he always seemed like a high school coach. To me, he always seemed like someone who doesn't actually respect the players, but just acts like he respects the players and goes about it in the wrong way. Brian Dable, I feel like, is the total opposite. He's obviously has some tough love that we don't all see. Sometimes we see it, like when he yelled at Daniel Jones on the sideline of that Titans game. But we don't always see it, I'm sure, behind the scenes. But regardless, these players respect him. These players want to play for him. These players enjoy being around him. These players feel, most importantly of all, free, confident, relaxed around him during practices, meetings, and when in the building. That was not the case with Joe Judge. There was no relaxation. There was no feeling of, you know, this guy has got my back and he's going to say something to me, but I'll learn from it. Joe Judge, the feeling was tense. It was, oh my God, we're walking on eggshells. We don't want to do this wrong. We don't want to do that wrong. We have to do this this way. This is the Patriot way. This is the Joe Judge way. And so I think the combination for Dable of his great offensive mind and the feeling that he has, the feeling the players have around him make this a slam dunk higher for Joe Shane. And then the third factor for me is just Joe Shane's ability to take a step back and be like, I can defer some of my power and my control to my head coach, which is not something every GM does. When you can even extrapolate on this because empowering Brian Dable allowed him to go out and hire his coaching staff. Now, yes. none of this is validated and I have no clue if it's true, but if John Mara had his say in Joe judge hiring Jason Garrett, that could have really altered 
negatively Daniel Jones's career in the early portions of his career. Jason Garrett was a negative to Daniel Jones. At least it definitely seemed like. Yes, he limited the the turnovers, but that's one of the only positive things it seemed like he did for Daniel Jones, but empowering Brian Dable to go out there and hire his guys. You think about that. You bring in Wink Martindale. They didn't have a relationship, but they interviewed him and they were like, you know what? I think this is going to mesh well. And I think it's been an excellent addition having Wink Martindale. Getting Mike Kafka was obviously great. And there's, it's not a difficult decision. There's a quarterback coach under Andy Reid who used to be a quarterback in the league. He was just, just sitting there for uh, the taking, in my opinion. And the Giants were the, the beneficiary of a great situation going out and getting a very bright young mind, young offensive mind like that. But even retaining Jerome Henderson, you don't always see coaching staffs take coaches from the previous regime, but Jerome Henderson is such a good defensive backs coach that he impressed Brian Dable and they retained him. And I was really happy that they did that going out and getting Andre Patterson. Like we liked coach chaos, Sean Spencer and everything. And I think he's with Florida right now and I'm, I'm hoping him the best, but getting Andre Patterson is somebody who's been in the league for quite a while, right. who has a lot of respect, who has worked with tons of different bodies. And he was the one to finally make the most of Dexter Lawrence, who we, went through the tape. We were always like, this guy has so much talent. We're just not really seeing it for some reason. But this past year, we certainly freaking saw it, Dan, right? <laughs> and I think there is some credit that has to be provided to Andre Patterson for that. This starts at the top. Joe Shane, he set this culture, right? And it just trickles down. Brian Dable, you empower him. He brings in the right coaches. And I just feel like we have a positive operation moving forward. You're right, Nick. Okay, so before we recap the five moves for each of us, I know we weaved some of them in already, but any honorable mentions we didn't get a chance to discuss that didn't make our top five best moves, but uh, might be worth taking some time on. So we we brought up Nick McLeod. We brought up Paris Campbell. I think buying low on him is just a cost-effective upside move. I think resigning Darius Slayton for the continuity and just rewarding him is something I kind of already brought up as well. Bobby Okereke, I think you brought up a good point uh, before the show, just when you saw like some of the lists of the ones that we didn't put in. It's like, yeah, that's a good move, but it's also market value. Like $10 million a year is kind of a lot. I think he's the ninth highest paid linebacker AAV. For me, I love the fact that they just said, okay, we're going to pay a linebacker. I'm done trying to find these stop. Yeah. I like that because we've seen that for almost a decade for the New York Giants where they're just, oh, we're not going to draft the linebacker. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Well, last year, it might have been your biggest vulnerability on defense. So let's not just figure it out and actually nail it down. And I think Bobby Okereke, that addition was excellent. Just retaining Dexter Lawrence. We knew that was going to happen. Bringing him in, it's it's, uh, I would say a relatively team friendly contract from everything that I've seen for somebody with that upside at that, that young coming off of the monster season that he had. And here's an interesting one that I just wanted to kind of throw at you a little bit, Dan, mm -hmm. not kicking Kenny Galladay's $14.7 million cap hit to 2024 and absorbing that in 2023. I'm not certain if that's going to be a good move because if the Giants suffer injuries, they're cap strapped right now. And yeah. part one reason why is because of Kenny Galladay's $14.7 million dead cap sitting right there for the Giants. But next year in 2024, when hopefully the Giants are even a little bit more competitive, depending on what happens, now you don't have to worry about that. You just yeah. cut it and it's done after this. We're done with the Kenny Galladay experience. And there is a part of me that appreciated that approach. I appreciate that too. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was one I didn't think of even to put on in my honorable mentions or anything. And it's a great point because it goes into what we discussed earlier. That is big one for me, which is the calculated decisions, the cool, calm, calculated ways of Joe Shane. He understands like, I don't need to jam my cap. Like, I don't need to risk future cap right now just to get the best possible roster I can get for 2023. Get it, get it, get it, get it. No, it's about building long-term. Get it when you can get it. Get it when it falls into place. It's a lot. I find these things like game, a lot of games I play to be a lot like poker. I haven't had a poker reference in a while, but when you're sitting there in poker and you lose a bad beat, 
kings, you have kings, the guy flops a set of queens, you lose your whole stack, you're playing deep. A lot of the players who don't or aren't considered winning players, Nick, will then go back into the very next hand, raise it, call a raise, and through the next 20 or so minutes, they're going to be playing a lot more hands, probably 50, 60% than they normally play. That's how you lose. You never win that way. You have to let it come to you in poker. You have to let the spots come to you. There will be chances to bluff and steal pots. But you got to let them come to you. You can't just force every situation. Same thing goes, in my opinion, for Giants general manager, for being a general manager in the NFL. You can't force things, right? You can't just say, DeAndre Hopkins, let's, let's just do it. Let's just, you know, we'll take the Kenny Galladay cap it next year. I don't care how old Hopkins is. Let's give him all this guarantee. Let's sign him to a big contract. Let's be the team that pays him the most. Because that's what he wants, dude. That's why he's still in the market, like visiting the Patriots and the Titans. He's just shopping around, waiting for the best offer he can get. That's what he cares about most, like, obviously. And so to not be that GM that's just jamming moves at all times and playing for now at all times, it goes into what you just said with the Kenny Galladay thing. Yeah, there's a method to it. You can't just always just jam it in there, you know? You have to have yeah. some sort of method. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be uh, disciplined as well to be, you yeah. know, if we're going to be serious as well. You got to be disciplined sure. and I think have some sort of composure about you. And Joe Shane certainly seems to have that. All right, let's do a recap right quick. The fifth best move for me by Joe Shane was trench investments. Fourth best was not panic trading at the 2022 deadline for a receiver. Third best was finding, scouting, and drafting Daniel Bellinger at 112 overall. Second best was claiming Isaiah Hodgins. And the best for me was hiring and deferring power to Brian Dable. Let's go over your five, Nick. My five are improving the interior defensive line and investing in the offensive line. So essentially just trench play similar to yours Four, signing Isaiah Hodgins and just all of the other pro personnel moves that they made in the season to establish a successful culture with players who were there for like a week. It's kind of crazy when you really think about it. If you include Fabian Moreau and Nick McLeod, three, drafting Daniel Bellinger in the fourth round, just really finding day three steals. Hopefully there are going to be more day three steals from the 2022 and 2023 draft that end up coming uh, to fruition over the next couple of years. Trading a third for Darren Waller is my second. And that also includes just finding explosive playmakers. I just think Darren Waller is the instance that you would look for and the most explosive playmaker, or at least in terms of potential. And then my number one is assembling the front office and coaching staff to establish success. There we go. There you have it. That was our five best moves from Joe Shane and his first two off as a Giants general manager. Leave us comments, replies, of your favorite moves. If they're the same as ours, give us your rankings. Debate, embrace debate. We'll get into it. I'll look at some of the comments. But otherwise, have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.